Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 this morning again. We're looking at the end of the chapter. I trust that you have a desire for the Word of God. That you read the Scriptures. That that's a part of your life. Maybe, maybe it's a place where you're still struggling a little to develop some consistency, but, but you know how important it is. And so you desire that. We're in the summertime months, and the summertime, well, the living is easy or something like that. It's a great time to pick up that habit, that pattern of reading the Scriptures. The church provides every week a a set of readings that will take you through the entire Bible in a year if you follow along. And beloved, nothing will change you more. Nothing will change you more. There is nothing you can do. There is no group you can be part of. There is no movie you can watch. There is no book you can read that will transform you like the living Word of God as you take it in faithfully, consistently, in large quantities. As I read the scriptures, one of the things that really stands out to me is the candid way the scriptures present the people of God. In the church's reading program right now, we're, we're finishing up reading through Kings and Chronicles, Second Kings and, uh, and Second Chronicles, and we're we are encountering the, uh, the monarchy of Israel and Judah. And it always stands out to me as to, as to how, how the Word of God presents the leaders of the people of God uh, in a really unvarnished way. It presents their spiritual triumphs and it presents their spiritual failures. It gives us the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will. And that's good because that's uh, me and that's you, right? We have our spiritual triumphs and we have our spiritual lows. And as you study the history of the Christian church, you'll find the same thing to be true. That the, uh, the people of old, those that have gone before us over the last 1900 years or so, some of whom we are deeply indebted to. We have learned much from their insights into the Word of God. But again, as you look at their lives, you'll see that they're, they're capable of some of the most amazing lapses of judgment and outright sin. And yet they've been used of God. I think nowhere is this reality more obvious than in the history of the Christian church with regard to the people of Israel. It has been a shabby history. For 1,900 years, the church of Jesus Christ has basically failed to heed Paul's admonition in Romans chapter 11 and verse 18 that we, the Gentiles, are not to be arrogant towards the sons of Abraham. But the reality of the matter is that often that is what has characterized the Christian church. 
On a best case basis, generally speaking, we have ignored the Jewish people when it comes to the gospel. On a worst case basis, some of our Christian leaders have engaged in outright anti-Semitic behavior, even violence, even inciting violence against the nation, against the people. Now, it's undoubtedly true, it's, it's without argument, that the relationship between Israel and, and the church is a complicated one. It's a difficult one. Again, Paul says in that same chapter of Romans chapter 11 and verse 28, speaking about his own countrymen, he says that they are enemies of the gospel while at the same time beloved by God. They reside in this interesting dual situation where they are incredibly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, enemies of it, yet at the same time beloved by God. And certainly the history of the book of Acts bears this out. Recording the first 30 years of the Christian church following Pentecost, you work your way through the book of Acts, and what you see is persecution after persecution after persecution of these early believers. And what you find is that the persecution always comes at either the hands of or the instigation of the Jewish people. That caused significant tensions, as one might imagine, in the first century. Those tensions have only been further exacerbated by theological misunderstandings. And in particular, misunderstandings related to passages like what we have before us this morning in Matthew chapter 23. A number of years ago, as we were preaching through the book of Romans, we worked through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And one of the fruits of that study there in Paul's letter to the church at Rome was a a realization for us as a body that we needed to get in line with the heart of God for his ancient people. And we needed to become engaged in Jewish evangelism and in particular church planting among Jewish people. And so we looked long and hard to find church planters working among Jewish people. And they were hard to find. It was not an easy process to find someone who had given themselves to that task. After a long search, we did find such a family and how we rejoiced with them. And at the same time, how sad we were to hear of of what they had gone through in order to be able to, to go to their people. Five years to raise the support necessary. Five years. As they went to church after church. And people would listen and then they would say either openly or I think often somewhat under their breath, the words that one Baptist deacon said out loud. Them Jews had their chance. 
Well, praise God that his word doesn't say that. Praise God for his mercy and grace in our lives that have enabled us to to partner with them. Pray for the Jewish people. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Or in this section of Matthew's Gospel, and here in this section, beginning in verse 34, and we're going to be looking at all the way through chapter 24 and verse 2, but not this morning. We're just going to begin. But in this section, we will see the necessity of Jewish missions. The necessity of Jewish missions as we come face to face with the darkness of Israel's crimes. The darkness of Israel's crimes. The devastation of Israel's consequences. And the dependability of Israel's consolation. That is our outline for this section. This morning we will look only at the first, the darkness of Israel's crimes. And so let me read for you, and I'm going to back up to verse 29 and pick up a flow of the context. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That is an incredibly horrific statement. The Pharisees have been engaged for the last three years in a ministry of evil. They have been opposing Christ and his message. They have been shutting off the kingdom of God to men and refusing to enter in themselves. In light of that horrific reality, Jesus says, Verse 34, as he draws to a conclusion the woes pronounced upon Pharisaical Judaism and its adherents, that is his own people, therefore, he says, and he makes the most amazing statement, in light of this evil, in light of this opposition, in light of this violent opposition, therefore... I will give you additional opportunity to do your dirty work. 
I will send to you others for you to persecute and kill. I'm beginning with me. The Greek here is emphatic. I myself, behold, I myself am sending, Jesus says. Normally, we think of God the Father as the one who sends the prophets. Jesus here makes this amazing assertion, a statement of his authority. I myself will send these ones. A foreshadow, no doubt, of what he will say in Matthew 28 and verse 19, right? At the beginning of the Great Commission, all authority has been given me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go. Jesus is sending his followers. He is sending his followers into the lion's den. Prophets, verse 34. Wise men. Scribes. An interesting way to speak of those whom he would send. Those are Old Testament categories that speak of those who who bring the word of God to people. These should not be thought of as separate categories to be found in the New Testament church. This This is a stylized expression to speak of teachers. Behold, Jesus says, I will send to you teachers of my word, and you will kill them. You will beat them. You will persecute them. You will drive them from place to place. Notice the particularly Jewish emphasis here. It will scourge them in your synagogues, right? Your synagogues. As I said earlier, uh, even a casual review of the book of Acts, as you work your way through it, you will see this over and over again. Jewish persecution, the early followers of Christ. 1 Thessalonians probably wraps this up well in chapter 2 and in verse 14 where Paul says, speaking there to the Greek church at Thessalonica, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Behold, Jesus says, I am sending to you in light of your opposition further servants of mine for you to kill. To give full vent to your wicked hatred. Now, beloved, that takes us into the topic of persecution. And that is a difficult topic. It is a difficult topic. Why does God allow his children to be persecuted? For violence to come upon them. 
What are his purposes in such a thing? Well, we don't pretend to know the whole mind of God in such matters, to be sure. It lies within the sovereign and secret counsels of God Almighty. But he does have purpose for it. He does have purpose for it. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 6. I'll just turn you there. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 11. Just to remind you of this reality that God has purpose in persecution. It is not that his arm is short and he cannot protect his people. Revelation chapter 6 is the, is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. The breaking of the fifth seal in verse 9 The Lamb broke the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, and check this out, who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Wait until all those whom God has appointed to be killed in this way are killed. God is sovereign over the persecution of the believers He is sovereign over the martyring of the saints. And why he does it, he only gives us a glimpse at. There is much more to be sure than I think we could ever possibly recognize. But here in this context, in Matthew 23, notice verse 35. I am sending you prophets, he says, verse 34, whom you will kill. You have been killing them all along. You're going to kill me. I will continue to send them to you so that you can kill them too. Why? Verse 35. So that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood. So that upon you may fall the guilt. One of the purposes... God had, behind sending Jesus and his disciples to the Jewish people, was so that they would fill up the measure of the guilt of their fathers, verse 32. We talked about this last week. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah's great call. Whom shall we send, the Lord says. And Isaiah says, here am I, what? Send me. Go to a people who will not hear, he says. Proclaim a message of judgment to them. And die for it. 
and die for it. Beloved, these are difficult concepts. But it illustrates, I think, the dual nature of the gospel proclamation. The gospel is the good news of salvation. And it liberates people from darkness and sets them free. But it is also a message of judgment. And it hardens the hearts of those who refuse to receive it. Ultimately, whether it saves or it hardens, lies beyond the reach of those who proclaim it. It lies instead in the secret counsel of God. But the message here at this time, Jesus says, is a message of judgment, a message of hardening, so that you on you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood. Notice, by the way, that it says, upon you. A little bit later in verse 35, whom you murdered. Jesus is speaking beyond the Pharisees. He is speaking to the nation. And he's speaking to the nation and and saying to them, there is a corporate solidarity here. You are all guilty. You are guilty of all the righteous blood, including that of the killers who lived eight centuries before you, who murdered Zechariah. You murdered him, he says. You murdered him. Now that brings us to a difficult concept, to be sure. How can those who lived eight centuries later be guilty of the murder of someone they never knew, someone they never met? Gay even more than the eight centuries, all the way back to Abel, right? How can that be? It introduces us to a a principle, I think a divine principle, of what's called corporate solidarity. The the idea that that the guilt of the fathers is passed on to the guilt of the children, becomes the guilt of the children, as those children emulate their father's behavior. R.C. Lenski, in his commentary, speaks about this. I think he does a good job. He says, divine justice is not as superficial as ours. It demands more than a reckoning for individual and separate crimes. Each crime, when it is reenacted, involves a guilt that reaches back to the beginning. The last acts allow or sanction all the former that were of the same type. And so the last act involves the guiltiness for all. In other words, that when a, when a sin, when a crime is, is committed, there is a guilt that attaches to that crime. 
And that guilt doesn't dissipate. Time doesn't make it evaporate or go away. It remains. And when that crime is committed again, when that sin is committed a second time, there is another amount of guilt that that accumulates and is brought forward. And so what happens is that when a sin is committed over and over and over again, a mountain of accumulated guilt grows. That's a pretty scary thought. Pretty scary thought. And beloved, there is no hope of breaking that cycle, of evading that accumulation of guilt, save one. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is this very Son of God who went to that Roman cross and took upon himself the accumulated guilt of his people for all time. The incredible mountain of guilt, both past, present, and future, he absorbed. He drank the cup of the wrath of God to the final drop. His dying words were, it is finished. It is finished. All of the punishment Do my sin and yours. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation this morning, all of that accumulating, that mountain of guilt has been absorbed by Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says in chapter 8 and verse 1 of his letter to the church at Rome, and therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the most amazing news. No condemnation anymore. Because Christ has consumed my guilt. And as a result of that, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not speaking about my peace with God. That's speaking about God's peace with me. God's peace with me. It is only the gospel that can deal with the mountain of guilt. And they have rejected the gospel. Listen to this terrifying indictment. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the prophet, son of, excuse me, the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. All of the guilt from the beginning of time is now yours, he says. 
is now yours. The Jewish people had been entrusted with the oracles of God. They had prophets who came to them over and over and over again and brought them the word of the Lord. For three years, their Messiah walked among them, taught them, healed their sick, performed miracles. And yet, they refused to believe and hardened their hearts against him. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 says just that. You have refused the prophets just like your fathers. And you are murderers just like them. And Jesus says, to whom much is given, much will be what? Required. Much will be required. Think about the Western world. Think about the Western world. The Apostle Paul was in what's modern-day Turkey, biblically known as Asia Minor. He attempted on several occasions to go east, and the Spirit of God prevented him and drove him west. Drove him into Macedonia and then into Greece and eventually, I believe, Spain, and the gospel moved west. And it moved west across Europe. And as it moved across Europe, it overcame pagan unbelief in one country after another. Eventually, it moved from England to the New World. And America has had a long legacy of gospel witness. We have been given much. We have unprecedented access to the Word of God, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. There has never been a generation in the history of the world that has had the access to the Word of God that we have and that our fellow countrymen have, that the Western world has. And yet, they turn their backs. Beloved, listen. If we were to say that them Jews had their chance... And write them off. Why would we not write off the Western world? Why don't we just stop all gospel sharing? Call home missionary church planters. And yet no one would ever seriously suggest such a folly. To whom much is given, much is required, and we've had much. Do not be arrogant against the Jewish people, Paul says. For if God could break them off, he can break you off too. 
Now, there's a problem in verse 35 that I think we probably should talk about. Some of you are no doubt aware of it because I've had several of you ask me, okay, so what do you think? So I'll tell you. Others of you, I will introduce you to the problem. It's here in verse 35. And the reason it's, it's significant enough for me to pause and talk to you about it is because some will, will rely on passages like this to say that, that Jesus made a factual mistake in his citation of the Old Testament. And of course, if Jesus made a factual mistake in his recounting of Old Testament history, that undermines the credibility of the very Son of God, does it not? Listen, if Jesus made a mistake here, you can forget your salvation. For he would no longer be the perfect Son of God and able to be your substitute. So this is more of just mere academic interest. All the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Here's the problem. Which Zechariah is he talking about? Who is he talking about? Zechariah was a relatively common name, and so as you begin to read the literature on these things, you'll see a number of suggestions trying to resolve the problem here. But the two, the two main suggestions as to which Zechariah Jesus is talking about are, first, Zechariah the prophet, who lived in the 6th century B.C., and he wrote one of the last prophecies recorded in the Old Testament, around 520 B.C. If you're flipping through your Old Testament right before you come to Matthew, right? you've got Malachi, before that you have Zechariah, one of the final prophets. He's called the son of Berechiah. The other candidate is Zechariah the priest, son of Jehoiada, who lived during the reign of King Joash about 800 B.C. Now, in first blush, some would say, well, it just doesn't seem to be too much of a problem because it's the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 1 and verse 1 reads as follows, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, There. Settled. Settled. Must be the one who Jesus is talking about. Except, there is no written record of this Zechariah ever being murdered. In fact, just the opposite. Jewish tradition says he died peacefully. Now, it's possible that Jesus had knowledge of this Zechariah and that the Jewish tradition is wrong and that Zechariah the prophet son of Berechiah, actually was murdered in the temple. That Jesus knew that. Well, for this to be meaningful, not only Jesus would have to know that, but, the, but his contemporaries would have had to know that too. 
So it seems to me a bit of a problem because if his contemporaries all knew this, that this was widely known and accepted, then how can it be the Jewish tradition speaks of him dying peacefully? There is no record anywhere of him having been murdered. Seems to be a bit of a problem. Now it's interesting, um, I think, to this entire discussion to recognize something else about this Zechariah, the prophet, son of Berechiah. And that is, in Ezra and Nehemiah, who were contemporaries of his, they refer to him not as the son of Berechiah, but as the son of Edo. For example, Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14, the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. So which is it? Is he the son of Berechiah, as it says in his prophecy in chapter 1 and verse 1, or is he the son of Edu, as it says in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14? He's the son of Berechiah. Evidently, what had happened is Berechiah must have died before his father, Edu, Zechariah's grandfather. And thus the lineage of the priesthood passed from, grandson, from grandfather to grandson. It, it skipped over the father in the intervening generation. This fits exactly with what Ezra is most concerned about, right? As the people come back from the Babylonian captivity, he is very, very much interested in the lineage, in the heredity of the Levitical priesthood and those being able to prove that they were legitimate priests. And so Ezra traces it from grandfather to grandson. Hang on to that thought. So the first candidate for Jesus here is to speak of Zechariah, the prophet, son of Berechiah. But as I say, the problem lies here in the fact that there is no history anywhere that that Zechariah, the prophet, was murdered. So that takes us to the other Zechariah of the Old Testament, Zechariah, son of Jehoiada. He was murdered. He was murdered by order of the king of Judah in the precincts of the the temple. He was murdered in the temple. Kind of like Jesus says here. He was murdered in the temple. Now the events of his life are recorded in 2 Chronicles 24. So uh, if you can find it, we'll turn you there. To Second Chronicles, chapter twenty-four. We'll just kind of hang around there. This, by the way, is the man I believe Jesus is talking about. Now, a couple of things. The order of the books in the Hebrew Bible is different than the order of the books in your English Bible. They are organized in the Jewish Bible according to the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. That would make 2 Chronicles the last book of the Old Testament canon. 
It would be the final book. Chapter 24 occurs very near the end of this final book and records the martyring of the priest Zechariah. In fact, it's the last martyr to be recorded. Now, Jesus says, I guess you can keep your thumb, I see how I do this, keep your thumb there in, in Second Chronicles, but Jesus says that it's the righteous blood shed from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That is the righteous blood that has been shed from the beginning of the Scriptures to the end of the Scriptures. From beginning to end, A to Z, if you like. This encapsulates all of the murders of all of the righteous men and women of God from the beginning of time to that point. Beyond that, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4, where the murder of Abel is recorded, excuse me, in in chapter 4 and verse 10, God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You remember that? Genesis 4. In 2 Chronicles 24 and verse 22, as Zechariah is dying, the end of verse 22, he says, May the Lord see and avenge. May the Lord see and avenge. So again, it fits well with Jesus' statements about the guilt of righteous blood. You've got God saying that that the blood of Abel is crying out to be avenged. You've got Zechariah as he's dying saying, May the Lord see this and avenge me. The first murder, the last murder of the Hebrew Scriptures. It fits well with what Jesus says. Now, we still have this problem. And the problem is that Zechariah is called here in Second Chronicles the son of Jehoiada. That's a problem. Because Jehoiada is not the same as Berechiah, right? So we've got all of these things that fit, except we've got a name problem. We've got a name problem. No mention of Berechiah. That makes this an almost insurmountable obstacle with one possible resolution. You remember we looked just a little bit ago at Zechariah the prophet, who is called in one place the son of Berechiah, and in another place the son of his grandfather, Ido. This obstacle can be surmounted if, in reality, the Zechariah, the priest who is killed here, if it is his grandfather who is Jehoiada. His grandfather is Jehoiada, and his father's name was Berechiah and goes unmentioned in the account. Does that make any sense? Is that possible? I'd like to suggest to you that it actually 
reconciles all the facts really well. Take a look at verse 20 in 2 Chronicles 24. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Verse 22, thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. In chapter 23 of Second Chronicles, we read the account of the wicked queen of Judah by the name of Athaliah. Do you remember her? The only queen in in Judah, the only queen in Israel, really, and she was what one would call a witch in every sense of the term. And she set out to murder her grandchildren. And one small child was saved by the name of Joash by the priest Jehoiada. You remember he gave him to uh, his, uh, the boy's aunt and she spirited the child away and hid him for a number of years. Until finally he was, he was a small child and they brought him out and surrounded him with the Levitical priests with their swords and shields. Remember this? And they, they anointed him king and declared him as the rightful king of the Davidic throne. Athaliah flies off the handle and they have her killed. Jehoiada did an incredible kindness to Joash. And then once Jehoiada has died... His descendant, Zechariah, confronting this same king, Joash, with his unrighteous behavior, elicits not repentance, but a murderous anger, and Joash issues the command for Zechariah to be killed. And the chronicler here points out to us the treachery of Joash in the face of the kindness of Jehoiada. That's important. That's important. So what I'd like to suggest to you is that Jehoiada may have been Zechariah's grandfather, not his direct father, his grandfather. And that his his physical father would have had the name Berechiah, but he had died. And so the priesthood went from grandfather to grandson. Verse 15 of Second Chronicles chapter 24 says, Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. He lived plenty long enough to have outlived his own son. Plenty of time for the priesthood to have passed from grandfather to grandson, fitting perfectly with the point the chronicler is trying to make that in the face of of the most profound kindness came the most profound wickedness. 
and revealed the heart of both the king and the nation to the messenger of God. Now I'm back in Matthew chapter 23, and I will readily admit there's an assumption in here. But it's not an assumption without any historical precedence at all. I think it most fits the facts and accords well with the implications of Jesus' condemnation of the leaders and the people of his nation here in Matthew 23 and verse 35. You are guilty, he says. The accumulated guilt of every single murderer, of every single righteous person who has ever called you to God, and you have refused. Beginning with Abel and running all the way up to Zechariah, whom your own king had murdered in the temple. It all comes on you. Truly, verse 36 Truly, a word of solemnity. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. A little bit later, this generation will call out, and it's recorded in Matthew 27 and verse 25. His blood be upon us and our children. Do you remember that? Now, Jesus says it comes upon this generation, not Jewish people universally or permanently. This is a fearsome judgment, and next week we will take a look at the implications of what this meant. This generation, that generation would pay a terrible price for their crimes. And the Jewish people as a whole, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 15, remain in a place of spiritual blindness, and I would say even to this day, so that the reading of the law of Moses, Paul says, a veil lies over their eyes and their heart. They cannot see or believe the word of God. And so they remain locked in darkness. And so some might conclude from all of this, they got their chance. They had their best opportunity. They refused it. They turned away from it. Judgment has fallen upon them. They are guilty of all of the transgressions of the entire Old Testament. It has poured upon them, and they are continuing to be punished even to this day. And there is no future hope. Besides which, the church has come along and and absorbed all of their promises. And they've been entirely set aside. But that's just not true. It's just not true. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 28. Beloved, there is a time coming for God's ancient people. They are locked in darkness, to be sure. God is saving individuals as he saved the Apostle Paul. 
But there is a coming time of great Jewish belief. A time when the grace and mercy of God will be poured out on them in such a way that that many, many, many will come to faith. Enough so that Paul can write in Romans 11 and verse 26 that all Israel will be saved. The prophet Jeremiah wrote of that future day. When he says in Jeremiah 31 and beginning in verse 31, Behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Those are historical realities. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah will be as historically real as the Mosaic covenant was when it was instituted with God's ancient people. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Beloved, chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew's Gospel deal with the seven years known as the Tribulation. They speak of an unprecedented horror to come upon God's ancient people at the very end of which they will cry out to Jesus to save them. And he will bring an end to that seven years of devastation. And he will bring his people into the bond of the new covenant. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which means we pray for the return of Christ who will bring about the peace of Jerusalem. And in the meantime, We pick up and adopt the heart of God to continue to preach the message of the gospel to his ancient people, to seek to see ones saved, to plant churches, to pray and to trust. And that God will do what he'll do. May the Spirit of God work in our hearts so that we come in line with his priorities. Our Father... We thank you for the word. We thank you that it is true. There is not an error to be found. And that even when at times upon first reading there are problems, there are, there are accounts that don't seem to sort out Our Father, we know the word is true. We know your people did not make an error, for your Spirit inspired every single word. And so we must just commit ourselves to a serious study of the Scriptures to understand how these things can be reconciled. May that increase our faith in the Word of God as we continue to do these things. But our Father, as we study this passage both this morning and in the the days to come. We pray that you would work in our hearts to enlarge our capacity to love you 
and thus to love your ancient people. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Our Father, may you help us to come in line with your priorities. Enlarge our capacity to love those who in this time are enemies of the gospel, yet beloved of you for the sake of the fathers. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.